Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 299. Today is Sunday the 21st of October 2018. And this interview is with Dr. Kim Nilsson. Kim, with an MBA and a PhD in astrophysics, is a pioneer in many aspects. She's founder and CEO of Pivigo, and in 2017 was awarded Entrepreneur of the Year in front of 1,000 business and technology leaders. Pivigo is a data science marketplace connecting the data science community with companies and organizations looking to outsource their data science and AI needs. In this conversation with Kim, we look at how companies can better unleash the power of their data, the challenges with mining one's data, and the business of Pivigo. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Kim Nelson, great to have you on the show. You and I met at the wonderful COGX, um, where both of us were speaking, and um, so I'm really excited to have you on the show to talk about data. Uh, you also uh, recently were nominated uh, as one of the top 50 most influential women in, in, in IT in the UK. Congratulations. So um, tell us in your own words who you are, Kim. Well, I am an ex-academic. I, uh, from my confessions, I started out as a PhD astrophysicist, wanted to become an astronomer since I was 13 and had a straight career path to my PhD and kept going for a bit longer as an academic until I finally had to accept that I wasn't enjoying it. And then, of course, had a huge challenge in trying to figure out how to convert my skills from being an academic into something that a company might want to hire. Long story short, ended up coming here to the UK to do an MBA, learn about business, figured that if I had a PhD and an MBA, surely someone would hire me, and uh, would never have thought about starting my own business until um, that MBA that really helped me understand who I am, what I'm interested in. And also, of course, I met my co-founder, Jason, of my current business during the MBA. And together, we became very passionate about working in this space between academia and industry and started our business, Pivigo. Beautiful. So let's call it the pivot to Pivigo. What uh, was the inspiration of the name Pivigo? Well, actually, we were sitting in finance class at the MBA and our finance teacher was talking about this acronym PVGO, um, which stands for Present Value of Growth Opportunities, uh, which is related to share prices. And uh, for some reason, she pronounced it PVGO when mm. she, whenever she talked about it. And uh, it just stuck with me. I thought it sounded funny. And then I thought, okay, we are working with PhDs that have a lot of growth opportunities, companies that have growth opportunities. It has a nice ring to it, a nice go at the end. Why not? Let's call our business Pivigo. And certainly it must have been good on Google too because it's original. So, um, Kim, you, you, so with your background in astronomy, something that, let's say, many of us sort of flirt with the idea, at least I do, astrophysics and and the string theory and, and, and the dreams of the space. I, I, it has always fascinated me. So when you were at you in your background with your PhD in astronomy, you studied at Hubble. So for us, tell us what that was like, because we see you know, sometimes photographs sent out on emails or on Facebook. It looks extraordinary, but give us a little bit of an experience from behind the scenes what happened. 
Well, yes. I mean, we all imagine astronomers sitting in, a, in an observatory somewhere and looking through a lens at, at the stars. And of course, reality is not quite that romantic. I did have a good fortune to be allowed to go to telescopes, not Hubble, unfortunately, but I did get to go to some of the ground-based telescopes. And that's a great experience, but that's a few percent of your time. Most of the time you sit behind a computer and you are working with computer files, um, images or uh, just tables of data. You're trying to make them look pretty because when they come out of the, the instrument, unfortunately, they are not. Um, and so it's a lot of what's called data reduction, just basically writing code, writing software and trying to extract that one piece of information out of that data that can be of interest. Actually very similar to what data scientists are doing today. It's some, not something that I was aware of before, but we always talk about the insurance industry as being one of the industries most apropos for data and they've been using it from the beginning, as I understand it, with the actuarial approach the science has so much data as well. Are there other industries that have are precursors with so much data, like science, you know, um, space and insurance? Oh, that's a that's a good question. I mean, obviously, um, what's interesting also is to see that science has always been progressing industries. Um, and I'd I like to make the example of, for example, we talk about the cameras that astronomers use. The CCD camera was invented for astronomers. And that was the precursor to every digital camera we have today. Um, and similarly, of course, the World Wide Web, as we know, was invented at CERN. So it was a tool for scientists to do their work that then ended up being mainstream. Um, so I think um, there are a lot of history in these uh, industries that we can talk about. Mm, beautiful. All right, so Pivigo, now that we know where the name came, what does Pivigo do? So Pivigo is a data science marketplace and training provider. And basically what we try to do is to accelerate innovation with data in organizations. And we do that by connecting the organizations with our global uh, freelance data science talent pool. We see that there is enormous potential in the data that companies have today, but they, most companies are just scratching the surface about what they're actually using that data for. And often it is a question of how do I get started? What kind of people do I need to do? What kind of projects can they do? And how do I manage them to get something, some value out of this? And this is what we try to help them do. So we have these freelance data scientists who are applying for specific briefs that come from companies, as I imagine, on this marketplace, Pivigo. To what extent do, do the briefs become the key piece? Because I can only imagine that you still need to know a little bit the context of the company. I have no idea because I'm not in this. But I, I can only imagine that you, you still need to know something beyond the numbers or do the numbers speak for themselves when you do the briefs? Well, I think um, many will have seen the, the data science Venn diagram, the three skills you need being software or programming, maths and, and machine learning and domain expertise um, and there are certainly there's certainly a great need to understand the business that this project sits within so every company needs to to involve business expertise in their projects however it doesn't necessarily need to come from the data scientists themselves it can be just from that manager business manager who is excited about data who is excited about working with a team of data scientists and someone who can act as a bridge between the data science teams the brains essentially and the business 
And that person would be from Pivigo's team or someone from the company that's helping to un- understand it or give them better understanding? It's a mix. So sometimes we we put that person into the team. We find someone that has exactly the right expertise and the experience and background to understand that particular problem. Um, but even in those cases, I would say it is critical to have that one contact person within the company who wants to work with this because there will always be little company-specific things that only people who have worked in the business for a period of time will know. I'm just going to make a little break because I hear some a little bit of a fuzzy sound, so I want to make sure it's not my microphone. I have a feeling it's my earphone. It's, it should be okay. I have my funny battery, so. Okay, so cool. You have so you obviously do help them. So that brings up the idea of how many people work at Pivigo, and and what would be interesting also is to understand how many of your team are data scientists, coders. What 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 constitutes a team that's supporting a marketplace? Well, so we're a team of about 20 now, split across two locations, London and a very recently started Berlin office. And uh, our team is very nicely mixed between, obviously, the sales team that go out and engage with our clients and uh, the tech team. We currently have three data scientists in-house who spend a lot of time with the companies trying to understand what problems they have and how to turn that, how to turn that business problem into a data science problem. Um, so it's a quite nice mix of, of people within the team now. All right. What, what, how does one get started with this? Because at some level, let's say I'm, I'm working in a large organization, a la L'Oreal or something, and, and I, I know that big data is out there. I've read the Financial Times report, and I think it seems like that's something I should be doing. But how does one actually articulate the problem and, and then get that out and, and work through it? If you could maybe give us a business case that you, one of your preferred ones, I was saying you, you told me before we started that you have about 150 projects, so you've got a lot of experience already on this. What do you think is the best or in- most interesting business case that illuminates how you extract data, value out of data? Well, I would say, first of all, it's very important to start small. So not to embark on some massive six-month transformational program, but actually start with a small project where you can get a tangible result quickly that can show to you the value of your data. And an example of a project we did that, that is one of my favorites, it's not a very sexy project, but it shows the potential, is we worked um, recently with a company called Parts Alliance. They are a mid-sized business based in north of England, and they sell car parts to garages. Simple business, um, a couple of hundred people on the phone selling car parts. And the interesting thing was that each seller was allowed to set their own price within certain limits. And of course, what they were curious were, are we selling at optimal prices? And so we had a team in, look at the data, sales points from the last five years was a significant amount of data. And um, we're able to not only, of course, spot which teams are well-performing versus not so well-performing, which can create some learning across teams, but actually we're able to come up with suggestions of what might be the right price based on time of day, 
day of the week, uh, inventory levels, which is the client, what have they bought before, etc., etc. And um, we were able to show that with this model, this company alone would be able to increase their revenue by six million pounds, which of course goes straight to the bottom line because it's not about selling more, it's about selling at a more optimal price. And so it goes to show that even within relatively small, simple, traditional businesses, a lot of value can be gained. And this was a five-week project that we completed this in. Remarkable. But I can have to believe that that still did mean a change in the way that they proceeded. For example, you had to explain to the salespeople why, why they were being programmed differently. And that means, well, we're doing this data project with this team called Pivigo. And then when they have to propose the price differently, they're no longer maybe as free. How do, what did it take for the company then to execute in order to get the £6 million benefit? Well, you, you're absolutely right, Minter. I think you've got a new business idea there. <laughs> because, um, th- of course, what comes after this wave of how do we do big data is the question of how do we implement it into our organization. And getting that cultural buy-in, getting that change in the organization is a huge challenge. In this case, getting their um, salespeople to accept the recommendation that a system, that a computer is telling you when they might feel, well, I have a relationship since 20 years with this client. Well, I know that. Uh, exactly. That, that is a huge challenge. Um, but it just takes the commitment of senior management. It takes the, the dedication of a team to train and to show that this is how we want to do things going forward. And then sooner or later, for example, these salespeople, they'll see at the bottom line that they're selling better and that they are performing better. And that ultimately will, will lead to the change. Well, that sounds like that it might benefit from having a pilot with some of the opinion leaders that are able to express it, experience it, then express it, and then bring in other people, especially as you scale up into a bigger team. You, you were mentioning training. You, you said that Pivigo also does training. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? And I want to see if that comes back into this notion of helping companies with their training. Of course, yes. So actually, the way we started our business, as I mentioned, me and Jason were very passionate about the gap between academia and industry. And what we recognized was that there is incredible talent in our universities, motivated people with great technical skills who typically struggle to find a job, unfortunately. And then we have this industry that says, I can't find analytical talent. They don't exist. And so what we started now five years ago was our training program, Science to Data Science, uh, which is a so-called boot camp or a finishing school, um, whatever you want to call it, where for five weeks, these incredibly smart people, smart and motivated people, work on projects with our partner companies. So they actually solve real data science projects, problems for our partners in those five weeks, by, while, of course, gaining commercial experience, and they might even come out of, uh, come out of it with a job at the end. Well, from what I hear, the challenge is not only the, the scarcity of data scientists or experienced data scientists, but it's also the cost, because the best data scientists, who, at least those who have experience, can basically name their price. Mm-hmm. Do you help them with uh, salary adjustments? Is that, is that something that's true in, in your experience? Yes, God, yes. Um, I've heard real horror stories of uh, companies that have hired uh, fresh out of a PhD at a reasonable rate, and six, 12 months down the line, Facebook or Google comes and offers them three times that salary. It's, it's really tough for companies that are not Google or Facebook 
to retain people. It's relatively easy to hire at a junior level, but keeping them is hard. And so that's where I've seen some great examples from organizations who do a lot around uh, around the training element, around the looking at other benefits than just financial, looking at sharing IP. I've even heard that mentioned. Our companies share IP with their employees to just keep them. Um, what I do notice also, though, on the other side, is that um, academics who come out into the job market are often not very confident and will actually often sell themselves a bit short in the first job, which also contributes to that to that shift about six to 12 months into their career when they realize what they're actually worth. So it's our job then to prop up their confidence a little bit and say, you are great. Don't ask for too much, but also know your value. Interestingly, uh, I've seen documentaries that talk about data scientists. In the past, it was a job for women. And then in the 80s, it merged or evolved and became a job for men. Today, we talk a lot about the lack of women in data science. Kim, obviously, you're part of that other movement, bringing back women in. To what extent is that a truth in the people coming out of university? And, and can we see, do you see evolutions where more women will be in the data science world? Oh, absolutely. In our training program, pretty much every year we've increased the ratio of, of female to male um, participants. I'm very proud to say that the, the next one that we run in about three weeks' time currently has more women signed up than men. So um, we see a sh- change, especially at, that, at those younger levels where they come in. And I think the challenge then will be to keep them once they're in there because they, they end up in a very male-dominated world, but they have to feel welcome and they have to feel that there's a path forward for them. Uh, the challenge that I see at, at the younger levels is, again, the confidence piece. Academics in general are less confident than someone who's gone through a business degree, say. But even among academics, on average, again, the women have even less confidence. And they'll look, it's the typical thing. They'll look at the job spec and, and see that they have three out of ten, and they'll go, no way, I'm not even applying. Whereas a male applicant might go, well, I'll give it a go and see the what provider. happens. Yes. So, so again, I think we all, those of us who are in industry, we need to do our best in building the confidence in the younger generation. Yeah, totally. That's sort of why that very thought of that lack of confidence idea came up when women oftentimes need to have done it three times to say, I know how to do it, whereas a man never done it once can say, I, I know. Um, so... When, when you are a company and you know you're sitting on a, on a pool of data, what are the, the ways to, to actually unleash the power that's within it? And I'm thinking of the problems that come up, including the unstructured nature of it, the time, timeliness of it, and the ability for it to stay current. What, what, are, what are the things that really are the keys to unleashing that power that's within the data? Number one, and so I, I have a presentation I give every now and then about the 10 steps from data dinosaur to data driven. And um, actually, after you've verified that you have data and that, that it's a suit of suitable quality, the next thing you need to know is the question. Indeed, as you say, knowing the question is key. And the way we, when we work with our clients is we, we don't start with data. We start with the business. What are the the things that are keeping you as a CMO, as a CEO, as a CFO up at night that you worry about? Or where are the pinpoints where you think 
we could do better here. If only we knew how. Um, so finding out what are what are the, the bottlenecks of the business and then look at, okay, can the data solve that problem? And in many cases, it can, or at least you can do that little first proof of concept to prove that, it, that there might be something there. But it's always key to start with the business and start with the business question and then see what can the data do to solve it. So presumably in the, in the case of the car parts business, they were saying, well, we, we really would like to improve our profitability and then maybe we can maximize price. Ah, let's see, let's take a look at that. That seems a lot easier. Other times, my, well, my brand's undervalued. You know, these are sort of more abstract problems. And I suppose you, the challenge is coming down and whittling down to a question that then becomes data responsive. Yes, so in another example, we started to speak with Ted Baker, the, the fashion business. They were concerned about marketing spend. So we were meeting with the CMO, and they were wondering, how can we make sure that the way we spend our marketing budget, which is quite significant, um, is spent well, and how we're getting the ROI on that marketing. And so with them, we then worked out a couple of different projects around segmenting their, their clients, understanding which channels they came from and which were the successful ones. And, and they ended up knowing exactly where to spend each marketing pound um, of their budget. I'm guessing then, so maybe let's start with, with the 150 projects or so that you've already had under your belt, do you have some generalization as to the type of projects you're working on? In other words, are we spending more time in manufacturing, in marketing, in pricing? or Do you have any buckets within that that seem to already start to emerge? Well, yes. Um, so interestingly, when we started the business, all, all our networking was quite random. We, it was whoever we managed to meet at an event, which meant that of those 150 uh, projects and circa 80, 85 clients, we have every, every type of business under the sun in some sense, large, small, different industries. But we do see certain types of projects coming up again and again, of course. Typically, customer segmentation, as I mentioned, is one. And so understanding your customer, um, similarly recommendation systems. So you bought item X, you might want item Y. Um, also, um, something a lot of projects around optimization. So either price optimization, the case I mentioned before, or with Royal Mail, we've done quite a lot of logistics optimization, making sure that routes are optimized. So, so these are typical case studies that we see again and again and again, yes. We're talking about data. Uh, we haven't used the word AI just yet, the acronym, artificial intelligence. How do you use AI within your Pivigo marketplace? Is it something that is each time custom-made, or are you already implementing within the platform? Yes, so I am one of those individuals who um, will not easily jump on trends. And of course, as a business, we do have to use the hype words because that's what our clients expect to hear. However, there are projects where AI is required and there are projects where a simple traditional machine learning algorithm will do just as well. And so it's just a question of finding the right solution for the right problem and not always necessarily um, squeezing a particular a particular type of solution onto a client. Um, but AI is, the trend of AI is great in the sense that it's making people excited and we need that excitement to build on to then actually get work done. 
<laughs> Touche. There's so many unengaged people. You 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 write a blog um, on your site in Pivago, and you cross post on, on LinkedIn. And the one I, I picked up was called. You entitled it "The Evolution and Ethics of AI." That an, and you wrote that an AI makes moral choices based on potential outcomes. So if you're not a AI proficient person like myself, what exactly should I be looking out for or thinking about when I'm trying to give these ins- ethical instructions to an AI programmer? Well, it's a million dollar question, isn't it? Um, there is a very large debate going on in our community about ethics and about how to do it right. Obviously, we had the Cambridge Analytica scandal this spring, which really shone a bright light at, at maybe the, the darker sides of our industry. And, of course, there's also been recently a lot of cries for a Hippocratic Oath for data scientists. The idea that as doctors, as, as with doctors, data scientists would have to sign up to do no harm Um, However, I also think that is not going far enough. Yes, we need to educate, and this is part of the education for data scientists. They need to understand the consequences of what they do. And and so I think we need a multi-pronged approach to making sure that AI in the future is, is fair and ethical. It's about good education and understanding consequences. It's about regulation. So government needs to step in and, and, and uh, put in regulation in place. And um, also companies need to take responsibility for what they do. And as part of that, finally, also make sure that their teams are diverse. Because if you have a team that is um, all the same white males, um, there, will, there will creep in biases that they don't realize. But if you bring in people with different backgrounds, gender, skills, etc., um, then you're more likely to be, get a more balanced and fair algorithm. My observation is that these types of projects happen a lot under the radar because they're being coded and you know the, the, the vision I have is in a dark room overnight uh, by these coders, and it's very easy to have these ethical issues sort of slide under the carpet. In that, if you ask, you know, you need to be, have the gumption to to push back to a client who's paying you. Say, eh, you know what? It's interesting. You're you've only asked uh, about white women. What about the others? And and the pushback can take a little bit of chutzpah yeah. in order to happen. So that can be a conflict because you're being paid by these people and you need to push back and bring your ethics into it. How do you see that happening? I mean, is is there... Regulation can only do so much. It seems like a lot of this other stuff is under the hood. Yeah. And I don't have an answer to it other than that the data science community is actually quite a close community today. Um, Certainly here in London, I can't see why it would be different anywhere else. Many data scientists know each other. They go to events, they go to conferences, they hang out, they communicate online. And there is a strong sense of moral and obligation within that community. Um, For example, when the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke in the spring, several of the people from our community were writing to me saying, well, Pivigo is usually shining a light on ethics. Please do something. Talk about this because we feel very strongly about this, and you are a voice in our in our society. So, um, so we did, and 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 we get that feedback then that they really appreciate what we do. And so, 
I think it's like in every industry, right? You will always have one or two bad apples, but most of them are really good. And I think the advantage we have as a community is that we are online, we are a strong community, and we can we can gang up and 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 basically fight the evil forces in in, in our uh, society. Okay, I'm going all Star Wars here, but <laughs> the rebellion for the good. No, but but honestly, we are a strong community, and as a community, we can take responsibility for what we do as a community. So I'd like to maybe just talk about this community because that's an interesting component. You have, on the one hand, you have to have salespeople go out and find customers, and you have your your programmers, your your freelance data scientists that are out there how do you man you know manufacture a community which presumably is quite distant everyone's distributed and coding up in liverpool and maybe helsinki and, and elsewhere um and, and how do you how do you craft your community and and are there gates to entry how do you select the people that you want to have in your community well you craft that community with a lot of love <laughs> with a lot of time and care and love and um, what we at Pivigo have been doing is for five years we have been going out to universities, speaking at uh, these sort of events, the conferences, uh, engaging with them wherever they are. And that means also a lot online, of course, because many of them are based throughout the world. And then with time, the word spreads that this is a nice group to be part of. And for example, for our training program, about half of the people who come to us now come recommended from a previous fellow. So it's that network effect of, of spreading the word. And that's where, for us also, it is important that, that we are a, a paragon of good and <laughs> that we have that reputation of, of being a place where where it's safe for data scientists to be, where they can learn, they can get help, support, etc., and ultimately where they can get jobs. And and so that's just how we, we spread the word. Does social media pay a part of this, or are we talking more in Reddit and other sort of forums that are appropriate for, because I don't even know them, uh, that are appropriate for, for data scientists? Well, interestingly enough, when, when we started out, we realized there were not that many good forums for them to meet. And so, in fact, what we're trying to build with Pivigo.com, with our platform, is a, a, a place for them to meet and, and engage with each other. Um, of course, there's plenty of, of, of places where they are currently finding data sets to play with or learning about the latest news, but not really a great place to meet. And so that's what we're trying to build Social media, of course, we use it. It's a, it's a nice way f to get in front of their eyes for the first time, but it's not necessarily where they communicate with each other. It's actually most of the communication, I think, happens a lot also in local events, wherever they are. My mind is worrying and thinking about, let's say, freelance drivers that work for Uber that can also work for Lyft. Is that something that you're challenged with as well? Because presumably these freelancers, they need to be fed projects. And so you, on the one hand, you have to go out there and find the business, get the briefs, and then push it out to your marketplace. Are your, how do you structure that? Because it's tricky. You don't want them to be available on all other competitive platforms. You want them on yours, and you've got to have enough business to keep them occupied. So how do you manage that? Well, unlike Deliveroo or Uber or etc., 
most of our the people who work for us they don't have to do this they could get a, a full-time job tomorrow with one of those super high salaries if they wanted to so they do it because they want to um first of all and secondly it that means that we have a, a mix of people that we work with from professional freelancers who, who work only on projects like this to also a lot of people who are sort of dipping in and out of a career. So maybe taking a full-time job, then a project, um, um, etc. Um, and for the, for the professional ones, it's just a question of making sure we have interesting work for them. What they want is different projects, new challenges, exciting clients, and we just have to make sure we have the best the best projects for them. But I, I, I'm not... They're, of course, they're allowed to go and work somewhere else if they want. I just want, I, I want them to come and want to work with us. I feel the, the idea of the... the, the um, what do you call it? The Star Wars idea. Being the paragon <laughs> of good. Um, so the last question uh, before we finish off, Kim, uh, and this is more, uh, more about the younger people who are looking, because obviously we need to have more data scientists, even though we may have... Going through your program... If you're a, uh, a kid who's thinking data is what I want to do or a parent who's trying to advise their kid, hey, data is a great play, where would you re- what would you recommend them to do in order to start getting into it and understanding it and crafting it, learning about it? What kind of advice could you provide? Well, there's um, a lot of resources online. First of all... Which is part of the problem because it's, it's like you punch in data science, now you've got gazillions of choices. Which, again, sorry for the plug, but this is what we're trying to build with Pivigo.com. So two parts to that answer. First of all, in terms of education, any science degree will do. So any, anything that interests you or your child um, in terms of science, go and do it. Because you can use any of those paths to get into data later. Um, in terms of concretely what can anyone do right now, um, there are a lot of learning resources online. And indeed, we identified that the plethora of what's available is is one of the challenges. So uh, we are launching in the next week or so a feature on pevigo.com called our AI Mentor. So the word AI did come in there again, didn't it? (laughs) It sneaked in. Well, this is is a personalized learning experience. And so it's essentially a guide that asks you what are your preferences and then will take you through all these resources, both in terms of reading, tutorials, challenges that you can do, and guide you through that learning process. Because this is what we find now. It's gone from, the conversation has gone from why should I become a data scientist to how do I become a data scientist and, and how do I get started? And there is just so much out there and we're hopefully going to try to help guide people through it with our AI mentor. Well, that is perfectly timely and good last question. Thank you for that, Kim. And I'll put that in the show notes, of course. Um, tell us how can anyone get in touch with you, follow what you're up to uh, and or know more about Pivigo. Well, website, pivigo.com, has all of these features that I've mentioned. Sign up. It's for free. There are no entry requirements other than an interest in data science. So sign up and use our features there. And, of course, all our contact details are there. And I'm on Twitter, Kim K. Nielsen, uh, for anyone who wants to get in touch as well. Kim, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on mintodial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Josh Sachs's finger paint. Oh, fill me 
Host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. 
That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 